You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. This is my first of these events, and I've got like 20 of them scheduled over the next three months, so pray for my wife, but it's, it's fun to, you know, I get to try out this whole thing with you. So it's been a, quite a couple days. I've never had a book of on this um, uh, level, I guess, or with this amount of spotlight on it. So it's been really fun. It's especially special to be here with you guys to talk about it. So um, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a little bit from it. Then I'm going to sort of ex- try to explain the book, and then I'm going to read a little bit more from it, and then I want to take questions because it's a really fun. It, like when you read the subtitle to people, you usually get people like, "Oh, I want to talk to you about this," or that hits close to home. Is some people like me, it, it hits, it nails all of us. Uh, we were all of them are nailed by uh, these topics, but some people it's just one, some people it's two, some people are like, well, where are sports? You know, where, where, where's celebrities? Um, I say, well, that's that's the next book. Um, so okay, here we go. <clears throat> it's 2016, and I'm approaching the counter at our local cell phone supplier. The guy manning the desk had clearly seen my kind before. A little on edge, determined to say their piece before losing their nerve. Not unlike a high school kid asking out a prom date. Which is pretty much how I felt. Determined yet slightly out of body. Desperate to get through with it and leaning heavily on cheap trick to drown out any second thoughts. The clerk did not demure, thank God. He nodded, took my iPhone into custody made a couple of entries in his computer, and issued me a brand new flip phone. All of a sudden, it was 2005 again. (laughs) Trigger pulled. I took a breath and asked how many other similar models he had sold this month. More than you'd think, he replied. It wasn't quite the pat on the back I was hoping for. I'd not come lightly to the decision to abandon my smartphone. The polite explanation involved wanting a bit more mental space. The honest truth was that I didn't have the self-restraint not to check the thing at every stoplight and during every trip to the bathroom. Even watching television had become a two and sometimes three screen experience. What sealed the deal was when my four-year-old drew pictures of everyone in the family taking extra care to place a phone in my hand. That felt the opposite of good. To be a servant is one thing, a slave is another. That relates to the beginning of that chapter. Phone calls and text messages were not the problem. I couldn't handle having the internet in my pocket. Like many of my peers, I had come to rely on the affirmation and distraction it provided on a moment-to-moment basis. (laughs) Affirmation of my enoughness and distraction from my not-enoughness. Seculosity lurked behind every click. I made up a word for this book called seculosity. Uh, It is simply, um, I took the word secular (laughs) and I took the word religiosity and put them together. That's all it it is. Um, It was a way, I needed to find a word that would describe religious energy and religious um, uh, thought and feeling that was directed at earthly rather than heavenly objects. 
because like to be alive, I think in the 21st century, what the book is about really is to be surrounded by religiosity. People to feel like we're always in church. We're almost never not in church. It's just not the good kind of church. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, Megan O'Geeblin, who's one of my favorite essayists, she was writing in the um, Paris Review a couple of weeks ago. And she said, as more and more Americans leave religious behind religious belief, instead of becoming purely rational agents, we increasingly displace those religious enthusiasms onto other things. Which is a fancy way of saying that as people retreat, as we read every poll that comes out and we hear that more people are, are nuns and duns on the religious question, um, that in fact that psychic spiritual force has to go somewhere. And we're seeing it. We're seeing politics invested with an amount of spiritual fervor that is, that, is, that is recognizable to people who grew up in fundamentalist Christianity. You, you, you see it around exercise. You see it around, um, around extreme uh, pure eating. You see it around uh, romance even. You see this kind of uh, maelstrom of fanaticism. But to me, I felt like no one was talking about how this is a lot like the worst forms of religion. And we actually have a long history of figuring out how to survive that kind of past and how to deal with that kind of baggage that was not being translated in any way, or at least that I could see. And so ultimately, what I, what I came up with was a book that um, includes my theory of why it is people today, myself included, why people seem to be increasingly anxious, lonely, and divided, and exhausted. And the, my, that theory is that we are too religious about too many things. The spiritual crisis in the West is not that people are less and less religious, but that we're too religious about too many things. We may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we've never been more pious. I think that's what it says on the back here. Uh, religious observance hasn't faded with secularization. It's simply migrated. Uh, the marketplace in replacement religion is booming, is booming. So back up, though, because what do you t in order for any of this to make sense, and I'm really trying to address the world, not necessarily Christians, um, we have to figure out what it is we mean when we say the word religion. Because, you know, a lot of, if, you know, if you've heard the, the various polling that people, more and more people, think of themselves as spiritual but not religious, you get the sense that religious is like a kind of a dirty word. And maybe it's being rehabilitated a little bit recently, but um, what is it you mean when you, don't tell me I'm religious, I'm not religious. My entire life is being defined about how I'm not religious. And now you're coming along to tell me, people don't like that, by the way. Um, I think religion, at least for the purposes of this book, it's more than like a worldview. Your religion is what you lean on to tell you you're okay, that your life matters. Your religion is another name for the ladder that we ought to spend our days climbing towards some dream of wholeness. Your religion is your preferred guilt management system. We have a lot of guilt, I think, and shame in our culture. Part of that has to do with the fact that technology has made it impossible to ever forget anything. <laughs> anything bad that we've done. So we're trying to figure out a way to shift this guilt and the shame onto things. And, and um, that becomes a religion. 
In other words, our, our religion, and this is, a, I kind of make the distinction in the book between a capital R religion, which would be Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and small r religion, which is simply you're operating um, the justifying story of your life. That's what, that's, I call it the justifying story of your life. So our religion is not, is that which we rely on, not just for meaning or hope or community, uh, but enoughness. Now, it's kind of a hokey term, enoughness. I was wondering if I should use it because I'm really trying to talk about righteousness. I'm trying, I draw on a lot of social psychologists who say that the, one, of the, one of the prime human drives seems to be for righteousness, a feeling like you're okay, feeling justified. That's a, that's a religious way of saying it, but we seem to be wired for some sort of, uh, we, we're constantly rationalizing things in order to feel like we're okay. Um, I use enoughness as sort of a secular corollary for righteousness. And if you listen carefully, you will hear the word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to people discussing why, we are, why we're so anxious, why we're so lonely, and why we're so tired. Um, you hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, charitable, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, holy enough, good enough. See, we, we believe instinctually that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds or one that we've inherited, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. But this is the wrinkle, and it's so well-worn that it hardly bears mentioning. No matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never arrive at enough. You know, it's the great, it's the great, uh, you know, Rockefeller quote. How much money is enough, Mr. Rockefeller? Just a little more. You know, that's the, but that's so indicative of so many things. Um, how much pleasure is enough? How much love is enough? Just a little more. Um, so again, enough is simply what religious people would call righteous. And our lives attest that the threshold does not really exist, at least not where sinful human being and limited. I mean, sometimes when you use the word sinful with people that don't know what that means or it just connotes shame, you just say, okay, just limited. You know, that, all right, um, you can go along with that. Uh, instead, and I quote a, uh, a, uh, a British journalist, who says people are today are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. That sort of explains all of social media. People are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. So again, why is it that we seem more fixated on righteousness than any time in recent memory? Well, at the risk of gross oversimplification, for centuries we relied on capital R religion to tell us we're okay. Clergy were the ones who revealed the shape of true righteousness. They're the ones who absolved you and sort of how you might be, come to be associated with righteousness. Church provided us a place to go with our guilt and our shame. In its, in its more perverted versions, it also became a place to, to, to generate more guilt and shame. But theoretically and, and ideally, and in the, you know, as you could read it in the church documents, it was a place to go with your guilt and your shame. A local forgiveness person. 
is how Stephen Paulson, who was here at the Advent earlier, talked about. That's what a clergy person is. They were your local forgiveness person, your hope dealer. (laughs) But for more and more people in the modern world, church no longer feels like an advisable or available option. It's sort of indisputable that that is, and I think that's only going to continue. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that the gospel remains true in all times and all places, but this is simply what is happening. Um, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who some of his thought is, you hear that name, if the more you listen for it, you'll hear it around a lot. Um, He predicted that the further we retreat from a shared religion, the more contenders would emerge to harness our spiritual energy. He called this the Nova effect, likening it to an explosion of religious pluralism. And in the book, I say that it's like that video game Centipede, if you remember it, which had this centipede going like this. And you were supposed to defeat the centipede, but you, if, if you got it wrong, you, you would, you would you fire a little thing and it would cut the centipede in half. And like it would go faster and faster, and then you cut it in half again. Like The more you tried to slash at it, the more nefarious the multiplication. That's kind of what... It, that's what the religious marketplace is like today. So, uh, in, because a lot of that's in the book that I've already re- just read, I thought I'd catch you up on some things that have happened since I wrote the book. Um, <laughs> in September, right after I turned this in, uh, Vox, the website, ran an article by Tara Isabella Burton called CrossFit is My Church. And it quoted this fascinating guy at Harvard Divinity School who's like really a sociologist who um, said that you know a lot of the fitness industry has... And by the way, when did Homewood become nothing but like hardcore gyms? <laughs> I, used to, I remember it as like a record store place and like a, you would get photos developed. And now it's just like, you know, lift the tire. <laughs> um, what he said is that... The, the, he, he quotes all these people that consider their church to be, their gym to be their church, and but what he said ultimately he said meaning making is a growth industry. Meaning making is a growth industry. People are dying for some meaning and some purpose in their lives, and so if you want to get their dollars, that's what you're going to appeal to. It's a very cynical view, but I think it's borne out in the, what, the rest of what I'm about to read. I mean, again. The marketplace and replacement religion is booming. It's been excruciating to have finished the manuscript and just be sitting there while people scoop you over and over again. Not that I have any kind of ownership of any of this material. Like Andrew Sullivan, the great essayist in December, after that was, that was uh, September, in December of 2018, he wrote an incredible essay called America's New Religions in which he said that politics has become, cult tribalism, political tribalism has become our new religion. He says, the need for meaning hasn't gone away, but without Christianity, this yearning looks to politics for satisfaction. And religious impulses, once anchored in and tamed by Christianity, find expression in various political cults. You have these on the left and you have them on the right. These political manifestations of religion are new and crude, as all new cults have to be. And like almost all new cultish impulses, they demand a total and immediate commitment to save the world. There's a deep righteousness that's sort of uh, uh, comprehensive, totalizing. They, the, the, if, you, if you really get into the recesses of the political partisan thing, um, 
you find what's appealing about it is the totalizing view of the world that claims not only to explain everything but also be able to fix everything. So in that sense, it's very religious. Um, they are filling the void, Sullivan writes, that Christianity once owned, yet without any of the wisdom and culture and restraint that Christianity once provided. That's, I, I was so mad after I read that. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I sent him the book. I, I have a friend of, he's a friend of a friend. And I just thought, um, just what he said. You know, that's, this is the whole book. Just what you said, Andrew. Um, but he didn't talk about all the other stuff. Uh, in February 24th this year, an article went viral in the Atlantic Monthly called Workism is Making Americans Miserable. Maybe you read it because the guy who wrote it got all of a sudden was on CNBC talking about it the next day because it struck such a chord and CNN and I think even Fox. Um, uh, basically, that article, I could summarize it, that for, that for college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. Um, that same week, The Guardian in England lest we think this is just an American thing, The Guardian in England uh, talked about some the workaholism in England. And uh, this one uh, psychologist said, one feature of religious belief is that your value is intrinsic rather than based upon performance or image. And as we move away from a religion-based society, young people are looking towards their careers to validate their sense of self. Now, we know this to be true. This is one reason why people keep jumping careers constantly. That also has to just do with the economy. But um, it's a reason why uh, it's, it's, it's great for the economy if you can convince someone that, um, you know, w the joke about Google, for example, if you know about Google's offices, there's like a playground and uh, people can bring pets there and they can, you get sushi there and you can play squash and all of this stuff. And you think, oh, they've made... Um, the office into home, but they've actually made home into the office. That's the great trick. It's the magic trick. Um, then, of course, right in time for the book's release, thank God we have the college admission scandal that occurred out <laughs> in the West Coast. And I got to, some of you saw it, I got to write in the Washington Post about it, and it was like a perfect teed up for the, you know, for the book. Um, uh, the college admission scandal, which revealed that to more and more of us, the college admissions process represents the ultimate measure of personal and social value, or what we might call upper middle class righteousness. An acceptance letter to the right college constitutes a judgment of near religious significance, and not just for children, but for their parents, who are the ones with the stickers on the car. The kids actually don't have those stickers usually. This, I think, partly explains why someone would commit felonies to circumvent a university's front door. Actions like these reflect a society in which success, not goodness, has become our highest virtue. Maybe it always has been. But that, how else do you explain it? People are they're after righteousness, and they're trying to protect their kids. They really want what's best for their kids, and they know that that will ensure a lifetime of opportunity and prestige. But also, because we are, as parents, I also talk about this, we, we are so over-invested in our children, partly because of technology, partly because of the changing social norms and reactions to baby boomers or something. But it was, you, um, we are, there's where we, where we end and our kids begin is, is much blurrier. So where your child goes to school is like, is, is a judgment on you.
Um, make no mistake. Any scheme where salvation is reserved for those with the most impeccable track records is a religious scheme. It may be unconscious, but that only makes the dynamics involved more dangerous. The fanaticism. And then, like, I, you know, I get, now that I'm becoming the guy who talks about this, uh, people start sending you stuff. So, a Cosmopolitan magazine, that a wonderful bastion of journalism, uh, <laughs> They just ran like a 20-page article on what's called Weed Weed Church, which is sort of as marijuana being legalized. It's, it's, it actually is called a church, and you go and you just smoke a lot of pot, I guess. And um, But people are dying for some sort of community and meaning. They're really looking for transcendence is what they're after, and that's what it's providing. Um, uh, I just There's a great article. There's a great Netflix documentary. Have you, you ever heard of Flat Earthers? Oh, there's a great documentary about flat earthers, people who believe the earth is flat. Maybe there are a few of you in here. I don't know. But this, it's a whole cult. That it's, and, and, and you watch as sort of a lot of them know that there's all of the evidence and all of the science behind it is extremely clear that we're, as they keep derogatorily saying, we're on a ball spinning through space. But um, that what they're doing is they've found meaning, they've found cause, they've found community, and they've found transcendence because they feel they're connected to some... They all believe that the Earth is a dome. And um, it's the most fascinating. It's all a tautology, too. You, if, you, if you get into it, it'll make you kind of, kind of go down a weird rabbit hole there. <laughs> but that's another... Um, uh, as diverting as replacement religions may be, they, do, they turn to dust under the burden of human suffering and sin. In light of sin and death, they look not just damaging, but incredibly lame. The strands, I mean, you, you'll, you'll know it as you read through the book, the strands of seculosity that, that I'm exploring, they all operate exactly the same. They're all what we would call religions of law. If you do enough, you will be enough. If you reach this standard of righteousness, you will, be, you will receive love. You will receive validation. They all, um, they, they succeed in the short term because they appeal to our yearning for control. But they run out of steam eventually when confronted with the reality of human conflictedness. The fact that you can tell someone what they should do and they, they will know what they should do and they just don't do it. And the, the, again, there's no allowance for that um, in a lot of the seculosity cults. that or, They're not cults. I, and by the way, I, it sounds a little bit like, even in when I'm speaking about it, that I'm examining these from like this clinical distance. Um, that I'm not a part of it just because I'm a Christian. I'm I'm a card-carrying member of every single cult in here. Okay, I'm not a part of. I, I mean, I'm not away. From, even if you can you can see through these things all you want, but when it comes time for your kid to go to school, just watch how you act. Watch what you're willing to spend your money on. Um, furthermore, anyone who has tried to hang their self-regard on a target of seculosity finds out that enough turns out to be a mirage, ever retreating into the distance. Now, it's a, a spoiler alert here. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that the core of the Jesus story, and it's, not a, it's, it's a true story, um, dovetails so well with the human dilemma of not-enoughness that propels our seculosity. If so much of our energy and so much of our suffering, suffering is caught up in the quest for justification, for self-justification, 
I don't think it should be surprising that the same dilemma finds a direct response in the central thrust of the Christian religion, where it says God has reckoned you as righteous. He's, he, he, you know, if righteousness were attainable by works of the law, um, what hope would we have? But the gospel is that you've been given your enoughness, that it's a gift, it's not something you can earn. And in fact, the attempts to leverage it out of your out of your career are only going to backfire. Um, and the, the fear that I get into, the, like a, a culture of law is a culture of mercilessness because there's no, um, there's no, uh, the law is not there to grant mercy. You know, the law is there to keep things in check. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we are living in what feels like a very merciless culture. Not just a call-out culture where, where everything's recorded on the internet, but, you know, where people get canceled constantly. And for smaller and smaller things, it just feels merciless. Like, and, and it feels, uh, William Blake once wrote, uh, mercy is the golden chain by which society is bound together. And so what the book is trying to do is, because everything I talk about is actually really good. Parenting is good. Food is great. Politics are necessary and important, and they can be beautiful. Romance is unbelievably transcendent and thrilling. A career, a vocation is, is, is what we all hope for and important work. But um, when they become exclusively uh, avenues for self-justification and righteousness, they turn into treadmills that kind of kill people and create a culture of despair because they cannot deliver what they're promising. And there's a, there's a culture of mercilessness that everyone ultimately falls under those wheels. Um, so I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to read another section of the book because I don't want to give everything away and then I'll take questions, but it's a longer section. So buckle your seatbelts. Nine months after switching to a flip phone, and what I'm basically saying, by the way, is that our phones, the reasons they're so addictive is that they're self-justification machines. They're affirmation, distraction things. That's no, uh, they're righteousness machines. That's what we're doing with this. We're looking for a hit of dopamine in, in the form of a new piece of information or a new uh, hug <laughs> or a new uh, bit of thing to get outraged about. We're looking for something, some sort of emotional response there. Um, nine months after switching to a flip phone, I went back to a smart one. <laughs> what got me in the end wasn't the web itself, but music and texts. They were the rationalization in any case. I realized about a month into the experiment that I wasn't willing to live in a world where music wasn't mobile. Walkmans and Discmans. I, what, I don't know. You can't call them Discmen, can you? Discmans. That's what the, the editor made me call them Discmans. I thought it was Discmen, but some, somewhere there's like a, an authority on this sort of thing. Walkmans and Discmans were faithful companions long before cell phones entered the picture. I can't and don't want to imagine traveling without a soundtrack. The last straw was when the CD player in my car broke leaving the auxiliary cable, my only option for tunes, it was as though the Lord himself had granted me plausible deniability. Thus, like a bad illustration of Romans 7, I started carrying around my decommissioned iPhone in the pocket not occupied by the flip phone. It looked as ridiculous as it sounds. 
a fact that my colleagues and loved ones wasted no time in bringing to my attention. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm carrying the, the, the phone calls. I got the flip phone for music. And whenever I'm on Wi-Fi, I've got this other phone. And uh, people are like, what are you doing? It's, it's almost worse than what you were doing before. <laughs> Texts were the other reason. Call me naive, but I hadn't realized how much I and everyone in my vicinity had come to rely on text messaging to communicate. The flip phone could accomplish a basic message, sure, and the extra taps weren't the end of the world. Do you remember that? It's really irritating. Um, they usually made people laugh, though. Still, pretty much all non-essential texting was eliminated, and what texting I did do became extraordinarily economical. This wouldn't have been a problem even two years beforehand in 2014. Um, but now it gave off the impression of impatience and even rudeness. People would ask me if I was okay, if I was upset about something, why I hadn't responded to their message, and in parentheses, because I was about to see you. I found myself making excuses for my less than effervescent text etiquette. Not exactly the most endearing position when you've just met someone. Basically, my relationships began to suffer. Like a vegan on the 4th of July, I was the guy, I was the guy you had to plan around. The only difference being that people today tend to be pretty accommodating of dietary restrictions. But that address or picture you're trying to send me, would you mind emailing it to me instead? Oh, and forget about communicating with anyone under 25. In short, my issue became everyone else's. It wasn't just car stereos that had moved on. The hope for those stuck in the seculosity of technology isn't hope that turns a blind eye to those things that make the internet such a desolate landscape. It is a hope that accounts for and addresses them. It is hope in the reality of a God who does not abandon his creatures to their compulsions, prideful or otherwise. A God who, we are told, gave up control for the sake of an embittered, exhausted world who did not come to be served but to serve and to make a definitive break with the endless cycle of condemnation and justification. This God, I have found, is not put off by our stubborn attempts to secure on our own steam what is given freely, but through forgiveness grants people like me the assurance and therefore safety to experience their pain, their not-enoughness, head-on. The implications are no less immediate than the technologies that seek to subvert them. According to theologian Ted Peters, once we realize that we can get out of the business of justifying ourselves, the world suddenly looks different. No longer do we need to defend ourselves from a hostile world by identifying ourselves with what is good or just or true. We can live in the world. We can love the world as if it is our world, with or without the lines we draw between good and evil. Perhaps this is the peace of mind evinced by Mary, who sat enwrapped at Christ's feet while her distracted sister Martha kept score and pleaded for Christ to do the same. He refused then, and he refuses now. Martha did not need technology to turn her into an exhausted, self-justifying wreck. Yet her failure to surrender control did not disqualify her from the one thing needful, thank God. In fact, it formed the doorway through which Christ reached out to her. 
Who knows? To the extent that distraction is killing us and we are too distracted to notice, it may be bringing us into contact with the divine in a way that no amount of carefully chosen, quietly contemplated words can. Because the God who dwells in silence does not exist independent of the noise, nor is he waiting for you and me to calm our own storms. Miraculous as it may sound, I've heard he even has a predilection for hopeless rationalizers and their hypocritical friends. I read it online, so it has to be true. That's the end of that section. Um, one of the real th threads of the book is the thread of death and resurrection. And that a lot of these, um, uh, I, I think I write somewhere, to be alive in the 21st century is to sort of wonder how much longer you can keep this up. Like, and to feel like surely the wheels are coming off the bus soon. And they do come off. And people have freak out. And um, all sorts of things happen. And hopefully they're not, we don't get go to jail. But... Um, as a, I, I see that the hope is found in that death rather than around it. Like God usually dwells in the defeat and reach, you know, we believe in a savior. We believe in the God who rescues those who are their own worst enemies. And so this, the book is also, is a deeply hopeful book. It's not, it's not, an, it's, it's actually world affirming because it's not an alarm. It's an alarmist manifesto of yes about how, what it feels like to feel like you're in a bad church nonstop. But it also is, it, because of this, I think uh, we are being brought to our knees in a collective nervous breakdown, which is ultimately where God will, does and has and will meet us. Um, so that's the end of my presentation. So questions, Q and A. Yes. I was reading today about a um, uh, tutors in New York City. You know, they get paid $375 an hour to tutor four-year-olds to get into preschool. Do you guys read that article? Um, uh, I don't. I think sometimes the younger generation has a better does better with some of the technology that we're talking about than like none of them are actually on Facebook. If you notice. Um, I don't know. I think I think parents are trying. I think parents are still trying to love their children well, and there have been ways in which parents haven't loved their children well in the past that have been different. But to the age of performancism, where everything is curated uh, and uh, displayed constantly, is I think um, maybe we're coming to a place where people just accept that everything on Instagram is a lie. I don't know. Uh, they, maybe younger kids will develop a thicker skin, or maybe we'll all just be incredibly medicated. <laughs> and I think that's actually probably where we're going. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I think that the the job of the church is to proclaim the hope for the hopeless, uh, and, and the least of these, and the children are the least of these. So 
Um, most parents I know who are doing this to their children feel no, they, they don't feel the freedom not to do it. They would say, because um, we could say, oh, these terrible New York City parents who are so worldly and they've got their heads in the clouds. Most of them are saying, no, this is crazy. But if I don't do it, my kid's going to get trampled. That's what they're, that's what they're thinking. And um, I can understand that. I don't know what the answer is. I know that there's only so much a human being can take, that we are finite human beings with severe limitations. So, But I feel empathy for those parents, and I feel empathy for the children as well. And I think God is merciful. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, where's the good news? Uh, I think there's a lot of And I, I think you've touched on it. Um, I'm looking forward to reading the book because you mentioned there is hope. Because I'm not leaving here really hopeful. <laughs> I mean, I, well, as you mentioned, we're all calling Romans 7 through all of these different ways. And we know we're calling it, but we're, as you just said, if I don't do it, I'm going to get yeah, and I, I do talk about how the church has often failed us by trying to, if you're looking for it, there's hope in here, but it's hope in God. It's not hope in another to do. It's not, if people come to the book looking for a new strategy to deal with all this, they're going to be disappointed because I think the abundance of doing is the problem. And so it's the proclamation of what has been done, which was where I think hope is to be found. And, but that's, that's not as marketable a message. So they made me put the what to do about it on there. <laughs> and in the, in, in, in the contents, it has what to do about it in, in, in quotes. I insisted on that. Um, and it maybe is a bait and switch. But what I'm, uh, talking about is yes, I do think there are ways to approximate a religion of grace for people who will never step foot in a church. I think a great therapist can be a total advocate in a wonderful way, but you're still paying that person. And if you have to pay someone to be your friend, at the end of the day, it's a little different than someone who actually wants to be your friend. Um, there are also there are other ways. I think I think there's a lot to learn from mindfulness techniques. I think there's a lot to learn from all sorts of things, but ultimately the hope is in the God who delivers, not in a new system to um, adopt, um, which is a more existential solution, I guess, but it's a real one. Our generation has grown up knowing both. I have the benefit of knowing what life is. You know, you're talking about the walk. I, I remember those days. Yeah. The children growing up today don't have that experience. That, that's sort of where I am lost, is in the generation that's your kids. Where, yeah. Where is that change going to really come? I do believe in God. You know, I, I do yeah. believe in God in this home. But the behavior change, where is it? You, you can't get the horse back in the barn. You know, it's, yeah. It's sort of, but every time we've thought that it was the, it was the end of history, it hasn't quite turned out to be that way. So, yeah. I'm just, you know, technology yeah, so that's the, and I'm talking about the technology chapter. I think, uh, I guess when I, 
didn't, I didn't mean for it to sound so dark. When, when I wrote it, it felt really hopeful. Yeah. So, so you're saying that the hope is that it's God who, who surprises us and wakes us up in the middle of the storm. Our distraction and stuff is not a stumbling block that he can't hit us. He actually uses that and, and grabs us. Our kids are knee-deep in the screen, and he can use that. To be a savior. It's, Absolutely. It, it's the whole idea of we, we're desperate for a savior instead of another another 12-step program. Or, that, yeah. that puts it beautifully. Though I do say great, really nice things about AA in here. Yeah. The moment you spoke, I felt very hopeful because I heard from a family and a person who I respect deeply for their intellectualism and their understanding not only of Christianity, the society we live in and have to cope with every day. I felt less lonely. I felt that the church heard me, and um, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I thank felt, you, Fran. Um, you know, I'm not alone in this, and somebody from Christ is articulating an understanding and an encouragement. I think it's a lens that if you look at what people are doing and they're, when they're acting strangely or in ways that you don't like or understand, if you can think about it as what's the righteousness that's at work in this person? What's the enoughness that, that's actually fueling this? It's a, I'm not really trying to talk in terms of idolatry. I'm talking about because I don't think we're actually worshiping parent our, our children. I don't think we're actually worshiping our romance, maybe a little bit, but we're not worshiping our job. What we're worshiping is the way that our job, we think that it's going to make us feel, which is enough, which is righteous. And that's a, that's a slightly different thing. So sometimes when the, in the Christian teaching about idolatry, we get to be like, okay, well then just don't do this or stop using your phone or stop doing that. And what you're chasing actually isn't your phone. You're not look, you're looking for you know carbon and glass and wires. You're looking for a righteousness that is that is being mediated to you in little. It's you know they know what they're doing. It's all addictive behavior that they are instilling in us. So that's um, part of it. And I think that when it comes to, as Sullivan said. There's a tradition of 2,000 years that it were uh, of Christian wisdom and thought that has, has gone into how do people live in the world um, in a way that is that is that it, that that allows for human nature and also allows for grace and love and mercy and, and yeah, Jack. <laughs> and so my question is, how does the church maintain cultural relevance without pulling away like we did a generation ago? How do we maintain cultural relevance while we mess with Christ? Um, okay, well, the two, the two ways that the church is, I, that I see has basically failed that I talk about in here, I talk about the seculosity of Jesus land which is my way of saying, it's kind of referring to the sort of bastardized form of Protestant Christianity that dominates our, our America, I guess. Um, and I say that in the, on the right, we've become so personally improvement uh, obsessed. And everything's about your own piety and your own 
personal holiness and trans being transformed, basically climbing a ladder in, in a way that feels much more American than Christian. And then on the left, you become obsessed with systemic improvement and collective change. And so you get people that are ping-ponging all the time between the two. And it's like, well, I hated my Baptist upbringing. It was so individualistic and so me-centered. And so I'm going to go and do an Episcopal church. And we're going to just going to help the poor and, and never consider the fact that we also need some, we're hurting too. And then this, then if you're there for long enough, you just was like, well, this just feels like homework. I, I, I'm so tired all the time. I'm not getting fed. Those people seem to be doing it better anyway without God. And there's no other awkwardness. Um, I'll just go over there. And it's, it's just different forms of law. I think the only hope for the church is the same hope that we've always had. It's the gospel. And that, that has always been when the gospel gets rediscovered, which is the gospel, which is, you know, Christ's blood shed for sinners, his righteousness imparted to, to imputed to um, people who deserve anything but, that has always worked like, I mean, that's always been electric. It's the Holy Spirit, ultimately. It's not a new, again, it's not a head trip. Um, so I think um, I have tremendous hope in that because I always, right, left, or center, whenever I want to talk to people about the pain that they're in and their enoughness and their feelings of despondency, it's very similar. And they, um, they, when you talk about absolution and forgiveness of sins, I think people still, it's not antiquated. I, I still think it, it, it touches down. And um, places that do it well, I, I, I happen to be a person that thinks you have to start with the individual and that community develops out of people that are a bunch of forgiven sinners. If you put the community thing first, it just, it becomes, um, it, it falls apart. It's like, I, I take AA as one of my great examples here because you have a bunch of people who sort of come to the end of themselves. They're constantly being, it's a very dark view of human nature. They're constantly reminding each other of their sin and their limitation. And yet it creates this community of intense vulnerability and togetherness and healing without the injunction to do it. Um, I think, so, there's real hope. I mean, there's real hope in transformation, too. It's just not as such. Yes, Craig. Now, I appreciate you mentioned earlier, and I'm notoriously short on answers, uh, but you mentioned death and resurrection. And I think regardless of seculosity, the human condition, Again and again, we come back to the only hope is in death and resurrection. Um, and life inevitably, through all of its various avenues, forces us into what alone is our only hope, death and resurrection, the fact that Jesus has spoken a greater final word than all of our various efforts uh, at being enough um, or being sufficient or developing mastery or whatever it might be. And again and again, that death and resurrection, that there's a great... Mm. Robert Capon, one of his books, and I remember this, talking about um, in the church, he said, um, you know, we, we basically uh, suffered under forceful pulpiteers, uh, he writes. And he said, you know, what the church needs are good gospel pot rattlers who can serve out a steady diet of death and resurrection. Um, and I think that's, you know, we as individuals need a good steady diet of death and resurrection if, if we're going to have hope and find hope. I, that's beautifully said. 
That's beautifully said. And I didn't even realize when I was writing it. Because in each chapter, I give stories of, of, of romantic relationships, which were all about fulfilling some sort of ideal in each other's minds. And they fall apart, and the, people, the relationship dies, at which point it is born. And a real relationship begins. And that happens in, you know, in marriages. We know that happens five or six times throughout the course of a marriage, maybe even the course of a day. But it's... Uh, <laughs> I talk about that as it relates to workaholism. And, uh, you know, I, I, I try to temper stories of this actually touching down in life and culture in hopeful ways, as well as the biblical witness, as well as basically my own life. I was, he pushed me, or my editor really pushed me to like share myself, which is not my go-to. I mean, my dad was much more open about his own life, uh, but uh, yeah, I do. I do talk about my own marriage in here and how that worked. Mockingbird itself, just I mean, just about it died at one point. I was I was very much looking for other jobs. At that point, God said, "Okay, now we can begin." I was like, "Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Why do you have to work this way?" But then you look back and be like, "I." The reins had to be taken away. <laughs> well, I think it's whether it's a phone or, you know, even like us, overthinking everything with our goal. Like, she doesn't need to go to the show. She doesn't need to go down the stretch. I have to add that sort of answer. And then she figure out how to, oh, like, where is she? Where is she? Well, look at your phone. Oh, okay, she's over there. Okay. But I think we need to call the Lord for the trust. I mean, the phone is probably the most amazing tool for business people that's ever existed in the last 50 years of my knowledge because of how much data you can put into it. But it's like we don't trust anything anymore. We go to our phone to check Google. We go to our phone to say, hey, what did Google say? But we're, what happens in this relationship of, you know what, I'm not going to leave my phone find where my daughter is just as good as three minutes ago. I'm going to just have a relationship with the Lord and, like, give that to the Lord, you know. Maybe that's thing in our home would, would have been fine. Or maybe you ended up, you're, like, I have a really bad ADD, and it was actually better for me to go through school and go through a ton of rejection so that when I got out of school, there the word no meant nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, why, that's why Mormons are such good uh, business people. It's so interesting that, like, I was talking to um, someone today who's gotten, like, a, really into cycling. You know, a lot of men my age get really into cycling. Um, and I was like, why is that? It's because, like, men need a project, you know, and they need to be going someplace together. Um, I think they like gear. Um, gear. Uh, but I think it's, it's really, um, it's the same reason why in that CrossFit article I referenced, one of the things that's consistently mentioned by people who love CrossFit um, is that it's an hour without your phone where you're just doing one thing and you're not and, and like that's one of the reasons I love church because I'm there's and I hear that and that talk about this in here one of the consistent refrains I hear from people that could never articulate any, a theological thought in their life but they say I love coming to church because I can sort of um, just receive and there's silence and it's okay for me to just like not have to do anything and given our own, uh, unless we're sort of forced to do that, we don't do it. Unless we're on a bicycle, you know, and heading one way, you know. But I, th I thought that was an interesting insight as it relates to phones. 
Yes. Now that the book's published, is there a chapter you wish you had added? Well, it does feel shorter than I wanted it to be. <laughs> but I was told that we were going for accessible. Because, um, you know, is there something you wish, oh, I wish I'd been able to get that in there? There was nothing that I thought I could write about, honestly, that was not in there. Um, there, there are plenty of things I see out there that I could have. I mean, the, the two, the two biggest ones, I think, are are sports and celebrity. I think those are both secular religions that are, you know, there's a lot of scapegoating involved in both of those. There's a lot of sacrificial systems at work, and there's a lot of salvation. Um, but I don't, um, I don't know enough about them. I wouldn't sound as smart. You could probably go into the way people are starting to think about certain forms of science, you know, scientism. I was just reading something by like another Nobel Prize winning scientist who's like, you know, this idea that science can tell us everything about the world is is a fundamentally non-scientific idea. <laughs> and it's it's the mark of a bad scientist to say that. And I was like, well, that's interesting. He's like, that's what we call scientism. It wasn't just some, you know, nut job saying the scientists are evil. It was it was it was people within that field. That would be interesting to do. Um, the politics section was found something I felt I had to write, but it was hard to write without without sort of threading a needle. But no, no, nothing else. We'll see how how it would be interesting to see. Uh, one of the things I'm I'm like fascinated in, in writing about this is to see what other people say. It's like, oh, Dave, you missed this one. You missed this one. That's what I like about the mocking cast. Because the three of y'all are talking about the same subjects with different points of view. And the honesty, inevitably, somebody exposes themselves in those discussions. Thanks, David. That's our podcast that Mockingbird does. Um, yeah. Any other questions? Why don't I sign some books? All right. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.